is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Dr. Yuval Levin. Yuval, I think, is one of the most astute observers and thinkers in terms of American politics. Uh, he worked in the George W. Bush administration, is now a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, you may have seen his columns in Wall Street Journal or New York Times, a bunch of other places. He has also written several books. The most recent one is titled A Time to Build. So we're going to talk about American politics and, and also American culture, why that's so screwed up right now, why we're just going from crisis to crisis and screaming match to screaming match about literally everything, it seems like, and if we could ever hope to change that. So, uh, Yuval, thanks so much for being with me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, listen to your uh, your conversation very wise from a couple of days ago. Excellent conversation. Um, We'll need to re revisit the, the whole thing. People should check it out if they haven't already done so after listening to this. But if you could, I think it's a good place to start in terms of, yeah, they often say politics is downstream from culture, right? It's a derivative of culture. What are the dominant cultural trends shaping our politics? And is our current cultural political situation unprecedented? Should we be worried about it? Well, yeah, you know, I think it certainly is true at any time in America that uh, politics is largely downstream of culture, although there are also a lot of times when the culture is shaped and affected by the nature of our political divisions. And I do think that this is a moment when the two are unusually closely connected to each other. Um, you know, one just overwhelming fact of our culture at the moment is the simple fact of polarization or division, which could be understood as a political fact, but it's not simply political. What we're polarized around has a lot to do with what we think of as the culture war, which is really a divide between, I would say, two ways of living now in America, two ways of thinking about the relationship between the government and the people. Um, and ultimately, I think one key fact to really see about our culture in this moment is that our life in America is defined to an unusual degree by the distance between what we think of as the elite and the broader public. This happens. Right. It's not totally unprecedented. There are a lot of populist moments in American history, but it's worth seeing that this is a populist moment in American life and that we also have a cohesive, unified elite to an unusual degree in our society now. Yeah. Very often in American history, we've had, we've had competing elites, overlapping elites, so that the people who ran major corporations, say, were pretty different from the people who ran universities or Hollywood studios or government agencies. These were different kinds of people. They had different kinds of education. They came from different places in our culture. Um, and they competed with each other. At the moment, a lot of our elites in these institutions are pretty interchangeable. The people who run the biggest companies are actually a lot like the people who run university English departments. 
and the people who run major newspapers and Hollywood studios. They all went to one of the top 5% of American colleges. They learned more or less the same kind of things there, and they're culturally very similar to each other. So that elite being so cohesive also means that our anti-elite politics is very concentrated, and we're just living in an up-down moment as much as a left-right moment in America. That has everything to do with our political culture right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and that's a good point. I mean, if you go from there was a point I presume when where people from L.A. and New York and Philadelphia and several of these other cities probably were a bit different, even though some of the some maybe some of the politics overlap, maybe some of them didn't. Uh, but now you can go to you know sort of the elites of any one of these cities, and it's essentially the same thing, right? The, the you, there's a significant overlap in their beliefs, in their way of life, and what media they consume, even even what they eat, right? The kinds of restaurants. Yeah, there's they really go to. been a centralization. There's been a kind of consolidation of elite culture, um, and you see it especially in the differences between the public and private sector. The people who run major corporations um, come from the same cultural space as the people who run government agencies, as the people who run universities and a lot of our cultural institutions. And so that really does create a situation where the rest of the country feels like there is an elite and it is responding to it so that our anti-elite culture is also very cohesive and we're polarized, right? There are two options. You're either on this side or on that side. And a lot of the difference is more like an up-down difference than it is like a left-right difference. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the, the character, the flavor of this cultural moment. It doesn't explain everything, but it's a really distinct feature of 21st century American life. Yeah, it is so odd. And it's, it's kind of like that. You, you see this a lot too. And I see with sort of my, a lot of the people I went to university with, for example, and, you know, they, especially during the Trump presidency, right, they would think there's some part of the resistance or therefore for the, you know, working folk or the comments, like, you guys don't have any working class friends. You, you And you believe the same right. exact things as, you know, Bezos or Zuckerberg or a lot of the Goldman Sachs guys now, even, you know, even that, they predominantly supported Biden. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about exactly, right? It's like, you, you have yeah. the same views as executives of most major public corporations. And that's that's one thing. I mean, you know, that's, that's fine, I guess. But it's not like, you know, this is the uh, you know, Democratic Party of, you know, the Jimmy Hoffa times or, you know, 1960s and the UAW types. Um, so I want to come back to that in yeah. a second, but there's also, you talk a bit about polarization. With the, one of the things you often hear is in terms of, I, I think you hear a lot of reasonable people say this who are centrists or or maybe, you know, slightly center-right or slightly center-left, they'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, both parties are to the extreme, right? Both, there's there's so much polarization amongst both parties. And there definitely is polarization, but I want to get your thoughts on this because, so on one hand, let's look at the Democratic Party. So Joe Biden of today believes or professes to believe very different things than Joe Biden of, say, 1980s, right? Joe Biden of the 1990s was a major, you know, ardent supporter of the crime, 94 crime bill. He was, you know, the, the guy who would sort of wax on incessantly about how, you know, uh, crack cocaine is so much more dangerous than cocaine and, and all that, right? He was kind of more of a, yeah. what we would consider a, almost like a Joe Manchin type, basically. Yep. And certainly there's a significant difference between Biden and the Clinton administration, the Bill Clinton administration, which I was essentially born and raised under, uh, you know, Bill Clinton and the welfare, we know you can never imagine a Democrat saying that today. And then we switch to the Republican side, and you say, okay, so look at Trump versus Reagan 
then that was the 1980s, obviously. Is certainly the rhetoric of Trump is is more abrasive and it's more extreme. Are the policies that much different, or because I think that the, the stronger argument would be that Trump is maybe to the left on Reagan on some you know significant issues such as free trade, um, certain economic issues, uh, certainly in terms of military intervention, uh, certainly you know he was he ran on the uh, approving a gay marriage right, uh, which he, it took Biden until 2012. And Obama, their second term, essentially, to to be in support of that openly. And you know, Trump probably a bit more nuanced in terms of big corporations and how to treat them because there's a bit of a culture war there, as we discussed, and probably more moderate on issues like antitrust than Reagan was. So, do you do you see that both parties are have sort of gone to the extreme in terms of policy, or is it just like Democrats have gone like ten steps in one direction and Republicans maybe a step? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I think in a way, Joe Biden is a nice way to think about this because Joe Biden has spent his entire career putting himself at the center of the Democratic coalition. Um, you, you know, he's thought of as a centrist, but he's not a centrist, broadly speaking. He tries to be at the very middle of his party coalition. And in the 1990s, that meant he was, uh, as you say, a, uh, a, a moderate when it came to crime, when it came to uh, when it came to welfare. Earlier than that, in the 1980s, it even meant that he was pro-life, and Joe Biden was pro-life until 1988, um, when he ran for president. And gradually, as his party's coalition moved leftward, you could see Biden moving leftward to stay in the middle. And he is still, I think, more or less in the center of the Democratic coalition. But now that place is is quite a left-wing place to be. Um, the story of the right is a little more complicated. I mean, I, in a way, it's almost hard to say what would be left and right on some of the issues where the right has changed, especially trade and immigration. Um, Donald Trump is certainly much more on the side of restricting immigration than Ronald Reagan was. Reagan was almost in open borders, conservative not quite, but he signed uh, an amnesty bill in 1986 and was very, very pro-immigration. Um, Trump is not, and most Republican politicians now are not. Um, Reagan rhetorically was more of a free trader, although he did use uh, he did use tariffs and other uh, and other trade policy vehicles to uh, advance the national interest as he saw it. When it comes to practice, he wasn't actually that different from Trump, but certainly they spoke very differently about trade. Um, and on some issues, there's no question that the entire terrain has moved to the left, and so what it now means to be on the right. Um, is not as far on the right as it used to be. Um, in other ways, that's not true. I mean, the Republican Party is now much more cohesively a pro-life party. There were a lot of pro-choice Republicans in the 1980s and even into the 90s. There are very few now. You could say the same thing, for example, about uh, Second Amendment rights. The Republican Party is now much more united um, on, on protecting access to, to guns uh, than it used to be. And so by picking your issue, you could say one party's moved more than the other. What's really distinct, what's really different, it seems to me, is that there are far fewer people in the middle. Um, the party coalitions have become more cohesive, and the parties now as a whole have clear positions on these issues, and there's much less intra-party factionalization than there used to be. There are a lot fewer conservative Democrats, there are a lot fewer liberal Republicans, um, and I do think that on the whole, the Democrats have moved left more than the Republicans have moved right. But what's most significant is that the, the body of voters in the middle 
isn't there to the degree that it was. One thing that's meant is that we have much closer elections now. There, are, there isn't this massive body of centrist voters that could go either way. You know, Ronald Reagan won re-election in 1984 with 49 states. He won 49 of 50 right. states in the Electoral College. He had 62% of the vote. That is not going to happen uh, anytime soon for either party. There are, there are far fewer winnable voters now who could, be, who could swing either way. Um, and, you know, that, what it means even to win comfortably is very, very different than what it used to. And we've been living now through really a 30-year period of extremely close elections where control of Congress is up for grabs just about every time, where control of the presidency most of the time is up for grabs. It's worth seeing how unusual that is. Um, that's not normally how American politics works. Most of our history, there's been a dominant majority party and a, a durable minority party. They've switched places sometimes, um, you know, and we call those realignments. But when they switch places, then you had a new durable majority for a long time. So that, you know, from, from if you just think about the 20th century, from 1896 until 1930, Republicans won the presidency all but two times. So they won five of seven presidential elections mm -hmm. in that period. And they controlled Congress most of that time. 1932 to uh, in, into the 1960s, uh, well, 1932, the Democrats won the presidency five times in a row, uh, right, until 1952. Then Republicans uh, won the presidency. You can think about a 40-year period from the, uh, from the 1950s to the 1990s, where Republicans were winning the presidency most of the time. Democrats controlled Congress the entire time. The sort of moment we're living in where it just goes back and forth constantly and it's never clear who the majority is, is very unusual and has a lot to do with why our politics feels the way it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. Everything you said, I agree with. It's very interesting because talking about the, the issues with the Second Amendment, how that's become much more consolidated, it's true. I mean, I, I, I'm probably even a product of that to a certain extent because I was always – you know, from, from, a, from a child, never understanding about the opposition of gay marriage. Uh, but the, the Second Amendment was was something I was always pretty firm on uh, growing up in California and having parents who were immigrants and sort of escaped, uh, especially my mom's side, you know, the totalitarian takeover of her country. In terms of, okay, so like I said, we have a very interesting time with the parties. The and it feels like no one quite knows what they want to be, right? Because Democrats still have that narrative of being like that, that working class party, which is you know a, a hangover from the '60s. But then you point out that hey, like ten of the, the ten wealthiest zip codes in the United States were all Democratic. Most billionaires seem to be Democratic. Wall Street overwhelmingly supported Biden over uh, President Trump. And then there was this Bloomberg survey, which I'm sure you probably saw from 2020. So. The most likely people to vote for Trump were truckers, construction workers, carpenters, builders, electricians, cops, mechanics, and maintenance workers. And the professions that highest percentage went to Biden were professors, therapists, lawyers, HR department staff, finance professionals, and bankers. So it's very hard to call yourself sort of that, that working class party when all your support is coming from a, a different class. And then on top of that, it's interesting because there were, like So, for example, Trump, we had the corporate tax cuts, so that's still a, a sort of hangover from what the Republican Party had traditionally been. It still is to a certain extent, which is, you know, a pro-business, you know, diminishing regulations kind of party, also trying to appeal to the working class. But then the left has all these big corporations on their side. So it's just, it's just very, it's very odd. Like, how do you see these things shaping up? Do you think that there's going to be 
a cementing of coalitions between the left and the right um, in, in, in a few years? Or is that the wrong paradigm to think of it? Yeah, it's an interesting question because in a way the two parties have both had trouble coming to terms with the changing character of their of their electoral coalitions. Um, you know, in a funny way, you might say the Republican Party has gradually come to have a coalition that looks a little bit like the New Deal coalition, um, which is to say working class uh, white voters um, and a kind of ethnic voters who are becoming white, which is, you know, which in the New Deal, you might have said that about uh, Southern European immigrants. Now we would say that about Hispanics. Right. Um, and uh, th that's a broad coalition in America. The Democratic Party coalition is gradually becoming something like the Eisenhower coalition, um, which is educated white voters and African-Americans. Um, and neither party thinks of itself this way at all. If you tell the Democrats, well, you kind of look like mm -hmm. the Eisenhower coalition, I think it would be a surprise and an insult to a lot of Democrats to, to think that. But that was a durable coalition. Mm -hmm. That was a way to govern the country for quite some time. Um, and it could be, again, but they would have to lean into it. They would have to understand that this is that they are now the party of the elite and that they have to think that way, to approach the institutions that way, to think about their priorities that way. And, of course, for Republicans, you know, if you're going to have the New Deal coalition, you've got to offer them something like a New Deal agenda, which means basically thinking about how government can improve the lives of working class people. There are Republicans who are trying to think that way, um, but... On the whole, the party still is not in that place. And even when it pays kind of rhetorical lip service to working class priorities, the party still, if you, if you wake up a Republican member of Congress in the middle of the night and ask him, what do you want to do? He'll say, cut taxes. Um, and you know, it, it, it still feels a little bit like the party thinks of itself as essentially the party of Wall Street. I think that as the parties come to terms with the characters of their coalitions, you'll just inevitably see some changes in the way they think about uh, the role of government and in the way they think about their place in the system. I don't think that means the Republican Party becomes a left-wing party or, or the Democrats become a right-wing party. There's certainly a, a right-wing way to be the New Deal coalition um, and you know, to emphasize some of the kinds of, uh, of, of concerns of working-class families that uh, conservatives can certainly speak to. But the parties have to see that this is what they now need to offer. The two parties, in a way, are stuck in a long-standing debate. They're still having the arguments that have defined the life experiences of the baby boomers. And both parties right. are still dominated by boomers. Um, you know, Donald okay. Trump uh, is 74 years old. Um, and right. Joe Biden is Biden's what, not even a baby boomer. <laughs> so yeah. Biden's not even a baby boomer, right. And, and you know, both parties are run by people born in the 1940s. And our country feels like it was born in the 1940s. It feels like its heyday was, you know, in the 50s, early 60s. It feels like it was sort of comfortable in the 90s, and now it's over the hill, and who knows what the future holds. But that's not right. That's not our country. Uh, we, we have a very bright future in America. When you think about the kinds of resources that are available to us for building our future, there's a lot we could be talking about, and we're not. We're talking about grudges from the heyday of the boomers. We're talking about taking, you know, great society programs and putting for all at the end of them. That's not a strategy for America's future. And in a sense, both parties are stuck in this kind of nostalgic place rather than thinking about what does the future require and what really are the electoral coalitions we're working for? Whose priorities are we advancing? So I actually think this is connected to what we were speaking about before, which is a generation mm -hmm. of close elections has kept the parties from having to learn hard lessons about who they are and who they're not. Politicians learn 
from big wins or big losses, which means that neither party has learned anything in 30 years. And our politics kind of looks like that. Mm -hmm. That is such a good point. I never thought about it in terms of the New Deal coalition, Eisenhower coalition. It actually makes a lot of sense. That does seem to be a, a pretty good an analogy of, of where things are heading. And and also, I think your point's excellent about the 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 politics are still being dominated by people in their 80s and 70s. And so they're still coming at this from that mindset of, of the era they grew up in, which was the 60s yeah. and 70s and 80s. That, that point is really important to understand. You know, it's really the, the, the president, as I say, 79, the, the, the Senate majority leader is 73, minority leader is 79, the Speaker of the House is 80 years old. This is a very unusual situation. It is not normally how American politics works, and I think it contributes something to the spirit of this moment, which is not a great spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think instinctively some of the younger people, whether they be on the left or the right, kind of know that the coalitions are different and, and you, you kind of see that in the way some people discuss things on Twitter and I think Tucker Carlson's probably a pretty good poster child of what the Republican Party or the, the right is kind of morphing into, which is yeah, maybe a bit more of a populist. You know, he he's somebody who advocates for essentially what Poland does, which is paying people for, ch for having children, right? That's, that's not a Reagan thing at all. And of course, you know, yep. a, a more hard line on, on immigration and the, the analogy between the Hispanics and say the Italian immigrants uh, of the old days seems to be quite apt as well. And it's something I started to notice even in high school because we always think of Hispanics as a different race, but I, I assume we probably thought of Italians as not being white either, Back yeah, when they absolutely. were first coming here as well. If you had told, and, if you had yeah, told no, people no like my, I mean, look, the the if you had told my wife's grandparents, uh, Jews living in Scranton, Pennsylvania, in the nineteen forties, thirties, and forties, that they would be considered white in twenty twenty in America, mm -hmm. they would have they would have laughed it in your face. That was preposterous. Right. Um, they were an ethnic minority, not just a religious minority. And we just don't think that way anymore. We've decided that that's not the case. And I think something like that is clearly happening to Hispanics in America. And they're going to be thought of as part of a kind of white majority in another two generations. Um, and the politics of that will follow a similar path to what you saw f with kind of ethnic Catholics, Irish, Italian, Polish, um, in the course of the 20th century, who also would not have been thought of as white uh, until amazingly recently. Right, right. And do you think the so when we're talking about the the top down elite working man sort of uh, paradigm, or or putting those people in sort of separate boxes, do you think that maps on relatively well to the right left divide now? And and that's. So, because that's the cultural phenomenon, and then there's the political phenomenon. How do you make sense of that? Yeah, I think it's not a perfect mapping, but it is increasingly mapping on to the, to the left-right divide. I mean, I, I do think that there's a sense in which um, the right in America is coming to understand itself as more like the party of the, of the broad public. Um, the left gradually, whether it likes it or not, is becoming a party of the elite. Um, and, you know, America's two-party system has often meant that one party tends to represent the city and the other tends to represent the country, or one party tends to represent more like the elite, mm -hmm. 
the other is more of a broadly popular or populist parties. This hasn't always mapped in the same way when it comes to left and right. Um, we're in a place now where the parties are very um, sorted when it comes to ideology. Um, the Republican Party really is the party of the right. The Democrats are the party of the left. There are not big regional differences that divide the parties. There are ideological differences. But those ideological differences increasingly have to do with your view of the, the tension between the elite and the broader public in America. And so I think the right is becoming more populist and the left more elitist. Um, it's a gradual process. The parties are not fully sorted that way. But I think that's the trend in our politics, no question about it. And real quick, regarding that New Deal point about how it's sort of analogous to the, the coalition that Republicans may be in, the New Deal coalition, were there big businesses in that as well, or was it just mostly focused on sort of the, the, the small-time businesses? Yeah, it's a good question. Broadly speaking, big business was not in the New Deal coalition. Um, and, okay. um, you know, I, I think there is a way in which we're seeing something like that happening now, too. The Republican Party... Mm -hmm is losing its deep connection to uh, to big business. And, you know, you, you gradually begin to see the Chamber of Commerce um, siding less with Republicans and trying to right. play with both parties more. Um, and, you know, I think that's unavoidable. I mean, the big business is part of the American elite. Uh, whatever that means in the moment, it's going to be part of that. And uh, the ties between Republicans and big business in a generation from now are not going to be what they were a generation ago. I think that's unavoidable. Yeah, and I think I think the uh, the current situation with DeSantis, who's like the you know one of the cultural icons of the right now, going up against Disney against this you know what they refer to as the "Don't Say Gay" bill, which essentially just you know prohibits teachers from being able to speak about sexual topics to, you know, K through 12, uh, no, kindergarten to third graders, essentially, is, is from my understanding of it. And so it's very unusual to see a, you know, in the past, a Republican governor who has sort of, you know, broad popular support in his state by the masses going up against the state's biggest employer, right? That's, that's kind of unusual yeah, in itself. Right. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we're, we're pretty much just tied to a two-party system for, for all intents and purposes? Because... Obviously, we have a different situation than France or something like that, or some of these European countries. One of the more interesting things that came out of France in that last election with was you had like their their equivalent of the, I guess, the center right and the center left, maybe like the Republicans, Democrats, not even making it into the runoff. And then Macron comes in, yep. creates a brand new party, and he's going against a, you know, like a far right party that didn't really have any traction before and with Marine Le Pen. Do you think anything could ever be possible like that in America, or this is pretty much you know, the, the system that we're going we're gonna to have for a while? Well, you know, the underlying structure of our party system is different. Um, we, because we have first-past-to-post elections rather than, uh, rather than a system that, uh, that provides proportional representation, there's a strong incentive for two parties in the American system. And we also, by now, the two parties are really integrated into the structure of our election system. They basically run the election system. Um, so that primaries are considered part of the broader election process, even though primaries are actually internal to the parties. Um, and that means that it's extremely difficult for a third party or multiple parties to make it to the ballot in most states when it comes to statewide elections. So to elections for Congress, for governor, certainly for president. 
Um, we've seen some independent candidates uh, do reasonably well, although it's very hard to get electoral votes when you're running for president. So Ross Perot, you know, Ross Perot got 20 percent of the vote in, uh, in, in 1992. He didn't get a single electoral vote. Um, and that's, that's been the high watermark for independent candidates in modern America. Um, it's extremely difficult for anybody to break through the two-party system. And so many of the kinds of divisions that you see between parties in the European parliamentary systems are found within parties in the American system. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, you know, th they, they take place in the primaries and ultimately they're evident also in the party coalitions in Congress. So you've got a party where, you know, that, that, that includes both uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Manchin. Um, Mm -hmm. Those people would not be in the same party in Europe, even in Britain, right. which really only has four parties. Um, they just wouldn't. And in our system, they are. And they, the fights they have are fights that happen within a party. There's less of that kind of factionalism than there used to be, but there's still quite a bit. And I think most of that kind of fine-grained political diversity um, is going to keep happening within the two-party system. It would take a real uh, cataclysm for one of those parties to fall apart or for a third party to really get somewhere in our system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And that's a good point because Trump originally was like, in, I think like 2000 was thinking about doing like a reform party or unity party, something like that nature. But right. instead, he just takes over the Republican Party and changes a lot of its priorities and, and other people essentially follow suit yep. with some of his priorities that are not adjacent to what the Republican Party used to stand for, particularly under like the Reagan types. So yeah, that, that's a good point. In, in terms of the looking at, as, as we mentioned, we're Everything is a screaming match now. Everything is like end the democracy. You know, if, if it doesn't go our way on this one issue, right? You know, we don't get build back better passes. End the democracy, right? We're always every everything is on level ten now. Do you yeah. think that is connected to our more insular looking, maybe foreign policy, right? So now you have there seems to be a and I think this Russia Ukraine situation. Is a little bit of a, is a bit of a microcosm on this matter because America is more concerned with itself than being the leader on every global conflict. Than and maybe the, the Democrats are a bit more on the globalization side, right? As of as, as of this moment, but there does seem to be a trend stronger on the Republican side, but in both parties of just focusing on essentially screaming at each other uh, about everything, and rather than playing this, you know, hegemonic superpower role, like we're going to solve every crisis, we're going to be involved in every dispute and be the, the kingmaker and be the mediator in this Russia-Ukraine conflict, you know, uh, famously, like, Saudi, apparently, according to the report, Saudi Arabia and the UAE didn't even take the President of the United States' call back, right? Because they essentially you know, feel spited because maybe of the Iran nuclear deal and some of his rhetoric. And so, like, the United States is kind of, like, off the table. And Israel, which used to be the people that we negotiate on behalf of, is now playing, like, a central role in negotiating between the Russians and Ukrainians. And we're kind of on the back burner on that. So do you think those, things, those two things are connected between our, our politics and sort of taking us away from being the interventionists around the world? And do you see that continuing to manifest itself and, and, and getting uh, more significance? Yeah, I, I think they're connected in a couple of ways. One way is that we are not really capable now of thinking about any political issue in any terms other than the other party is the problem. And that means that okay. a lot of the issues we deal with end up being channeled through this kind of intense partisan hostility. You can see that with COVID. 
where pretty quickly we stopped arguing about the virus and started arguing about how terrible the other party is. Right. Um, and, yep. you know, basic issues like masks and vaccines became very divided along partisan lines in ways that don't really make any sense. I think some of that happens in foreign policy as well, where it, it, it can seem as though we're talking about Ukraine, but actually we're just talking about the other party. And we're saying this proves that these guys were always wrong and they're terrible people. And, you know, I'm on the right side and uh, w whatever side that may be. There are some ways that the, you know, the, the sheer power of, of Ukraine's uh, example of standing up to despotism um, and to an invasion of their country unified us for a period across party lines. Mm -hmm. And people could say, this is something we can more or less agree on. But still, fairly quickly, we have fallen into a debate about the nature of American foreign policy that is an extremely polarized debate and that basically has to do with what you think of Joe Biden or what you think of Donald Trump. Um, that makes it very hard for the country to think straight about its role in the world. And I do think more broadly that in the wake of the Iraq war and, and in the wake of Afghanistan, there has certainly been a turn away from global responsibility, um, which happened first on the left, but then especially through Trumpism on the right. Um, and there's now a tendency to think, in my view, we are overlearning the lessons of Iraq some and coming to think that we have no constructive role to play in the world. And the right has become, if not isolationist, then certainly reticent to take responsibility um, and to see America as an essential player in world affairs. Um, I think there's some danger in that. And I do think that it is very much channeled through this kind of intense uh, partisanship, the lens that uh, distorts our view of everything else. Yeah, we, we do tend to sort of overcorrect, right? Every every time we have a problem, then we rather than so, sort of here on out reaching a uh, a solution to deal with other sorts of those problems, we just like overcorrect. And I think that the Ukrainian example is pretty interesting right now because you see, so the, the Republicans in Congress are still essentially singing the same tune and sort of have the same policies and the vast majority of them in, that they would have in the past, which is, you know, let's let's be strong, let's arm Ukraine to the extent possible, let's do whatever we've got to do. Yeah. And then, but then you have sort of these conservative and maybe influencer types or uh, media personalities, and they're taking a weird approach that I don't like, which is in order to sort of come out in opposition of Biden, they're, they're, they feel like they have to undermine Ukraine and have to poo-poo yep. Ukraine and to a certain extent I get it because of you know the connections with the whole Hunter Biden stuff and the fact that we've been lied to about almost everything all these major stories and Russia gates right and so it's there's a lot of skepticism and cynicism in terms of getting back into this narrative that you know Russia's the enemy and the other people are the good guys no matter what so I kind of get it but at the same time it's like there is an overcorrection there of okay well just because you know, they, they lied about Russia and all that doesn't make Russia good guys, doesn't make them any less of a, you know, evil action that they're committing right now in Ukraine. And it doesn't mean, and just because Ukraine is a corrupt country in a lot of ways, doesn't mean that we shouldn't support their right to defend themselves. That's, that's kind of like a tenet of conservatism. Um, so so that's, that's kind of an interesting situation. Yeah. I think it's an example of the way that a certain kind of partisanship um, you know, tends to corrupt our politics. We, we, we end up saying, whatever that guy's saying, I'm the opposite. So you, that, that means you become a prisoner of the other party um, and allow them to define where you stand on issues rather than say, well, I don't like Joe Biden, but on this particular issue, I find myself on the same side as Joe Biden. So maybe we can work together. Right. 
that becomes very, very hard for people to do, especially, as you say, in the kind of uh, cultural space around conservative politics. It feels like there's just no room for that kind of view. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we're heading into a more decentralized way of doing things in terms of, you know, one of the things the pandemic really accelerated was the self-sorting. You had a lot of people, California lost the most people ever, first time it's ever lost a congressional seat. You had a million people leave in the last decade. Um, I think, was it, was it 100,000 to 200,000 nets leave last year? And a lot of the people, you know, in my home state, uh, are, who have left are, as we said, some of these working class people, some of these cultural right-leaning people and economically right-wing, right-leaning people, small business owners, et cetera. They're going to places like Texas. You see a similar thing, uh, Illinois and New York, which have both lost populations mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of net loss. And they're going to places like Florida. And so we do see a lot more of a self-sorting. Do you think that leads to more of a situation in which we're not united, California does its own thing, Florida does its own thing, maybe the executive branch, maybe the, uh, you know, the, the centralized or the, you know, the congressional branch as well that doesn't have that much of a impact on our culture, the way we think about things. We're just more focused on California for California and more focused on Florida if we are and, and, and less united, essentially, because that, that was our history in the past. You know, the, before, in the early days of the United States, you were a Virginian, you were a North Carolinian, uh, you weren't a American, necessarily. Do you, do you see a little bit of a, a, a transition towards that? You know, th there's a good way for that to happen and a bad way. I mean, I, I think that, that, in a way, federalism allows us a kind of uh, escape hatch from some of the most intense, divisive partisan debates by saying, if California wants to run things that way, that's fine, but I'm going to be in Texas, where we do things in a different way. Um, that can be very constructive, but I think there are also ways in which, uh, as you say, we come to think of ourselves as belonging essentially to two different nations, and not yeah. to think about the fate of our society as one unified whole. Um, I actually think that at this point, our politics has become so nationalized that it's very hard for federalism to serve that kind of escape hatch role. We are very, very focused on the kinds of issues that divide us on a national level, and they've even made their way into local politics. So in the county where I live in Maryland, a lot of county council elections uh, have to do with immigration, have to do with uh, all kinds of issues where right. the, the people in the county council have got nothing to say about immigration. You know, I don't care what you think about it. It's not your job to have a policy about it. And yet they run on those issues because everybody kind of understands their politics based on how they think about those issues. And so a guy will say, well, I'm, I'm a Donald Trump Republican. Well, okay, but you're running for mayor of this little town in Maryland. I don't really care what you think about Donald Trump. What are you going to do about potholes? And it's, right. it, it's, it's become very hard to think about politics in any way except that kind of national divide. So I tend mm -hmm. to think that a little bit more federalism, a little bit more you do your way, we'll do our way, and we're still all Americans could be a useful thing. But in a sense, we're getting a little bit of the worst of, uh, of all worlds, where um, you know we are more segregated politically than we used to be. We don't run across people who disagree with us as much as we might have. And yet, at the same time, we're all obsessed with these national issues. So we're kind of yelling at each other long distance, yeah. rather than either yeah. agreeing with each other or saying, well, you do your way, we'll do our way, and it'll be fine. We don't get either of those at the moment. Yeah, that's a very good point. The worst of both worlds. That, that does seem to be the case. I, I recently saw, uh, I think it was Michelle Tandler on Twitter, she mentioned how in the San Francisco City Council, for example, has 
banned travel of their employees to basically most of the United States. I think the majority of the states they're not allowed right. to get they're not That's allowed right. to go to for personal purposes. Which <laughs> <laughs> is just insane. It's like what the hell does that have to do with you know running San Francisco, right? Yeah. Um yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it is odd. Yeah, it's you so know odd. the, the, and, and the so little odd. town of Tacoma Park, Maryland. This little town of Tacoma Park, Maryland has declared itself a nuclear free zone. Imagining, okay, well, that's great, but what, you know, in what way is that relevant to anything that your constituents yeah. are asking of you? Yeah, no, I mean, it is so interesting, and it's it's also so interesting how you can, with you know, pretty good reliability, you know, if, if you go to a uh, Irwan, you know, uh, or or Whole Foods in in most of the country, you can pretty much assume how most people vote, and you'll be right the vast majority of the time. And if yep. you go to a, uh, you know, a uh, what would be the show the Republic? If you're going to NASCAR race, you can you can assume how everyone there is going to vote, or vast majority, right? It's just it's right. weird, like how these sort of cultural things, which are traditionally apolitical, but you could just sort of assume what people think on like a whole host of issues just by looking at these sort of external things that don't seem connected to politics, but how how people self sort themselves. Yeah. How do you see this decade playing out in terms of some of the stuff we we, we discussed? Continuation of the trends, uh, continuation of these cementing coalitions or, or changing coalitions first and sort of cementing in place. Um, you, you mentioned there's there's some analogy that you could there's some analogous situations from the past. How do you see that going uh, in this decade, for example? Well, I, I tend to think that um, we are reaching a point where there's a sufficient amount of unhappiness with the status quo on the part of a lot of voters. But I do think the party coalitions come to recognize some of the ways that they need to change in order to speak to voter priorities. A lot of that is going to be generational. I do think that we're going to see the end of the reign of Americans born in the 1940s, who after all are going to turn 80 in the 2020s, um, and who still run a lot of our institutions, political and cultural and otherwise. Um, that's not going to continue forever just by the nature of things. And look, I wish them all long and healthy lives, but I don't think I wish them all continued control of American life into their 90s. Um, and the generational change that will follow um, inevitably will bring about more of a future orientation in how our politics functions. Now, there's a right-leaning and a left-leaning way that that will happen, but I do have some hope that our politics becomes more focused on the future needs of the country and less focused on these kinds of long-standing grudges between the two party coalitions. So on the whole, I'm actually hopeful, and I think there's a path for both parties to rescue themselves from the, from, from, from the kind of rut they're in. But look, it'll take voter demand, and that remains to be seen. On the uh, business side of things, do you, do you see any changes there? In terms of the the cultural climate of the of the businesses, you see the ESG stuff. You see, you know, sort of this what, what people would describe like woke takeover these corporations. Do you see that changing or getting yeah. or getting more? Well, look, I think that a lot of that. I think a lot of that peaks in this decade. Um, not that it has peaked already, but that it gets to a place where it begins to become ridiculous. It begins to re become a caricature of itself, and there is a kind of public reaction against it that restrains it some, but. Quite frankly, I think it gets worse before it gets better. I do expect that it will get better, but I think we're going to see more of the kind of, uh, of, of coalescence of big business around progressive political priorities before there's a consumer reaction that forces them to pull back from that sum. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I agree with that. And I think when you have uh, companies professing to be about social justice and then employing slave labor for all their goods, you know, and, and then I think when... When China right. eventually does something that 
is objectively horrific and broadcast on the world stage, similar to what Russia's doing. It's going to be very interesting to see these companies who have like no business interest in Russia speak out against Russia, see how they come out against China, where they have a significant portion of, yeah. of their economic livelihoods tied into. And if they continue with this sort of hypocritical approach, it's just going to be so clear for everybody to see. And I think you're going to see a lot of people um, on, on the left who are you know, intellectually honest point that out. Right, because it's just going to be untenable at a certain point. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it gets to a point where it can't continue. I wish we were there now, but we're not. But we will get there. Yeah. And, I, and I do think that uh, a lot of this is going to have to be rethought. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Yuval Levin, it was an amazing discussion. Really appreciate it. I learned so much. I think it's just fascinating. Where can people find you? People can find me at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. You can see everything that I uh, write and publish there. And uh, thank you for this. It was really wonderful. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast. And give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Sox, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.